Yeah, definitely. So I started the College Investor 10 years ago when I was finishing school. And I, uh, you know, started it just because I was passionate about money. I mean, I've been, you know, doing side jobs and little things since I was 13 years old. I wanted to share my thoughts on money. And, uh, you know, along the way, I, I didn't like some of the advice I was hearing out there. So I was like, I'm going to share my thoughts. And, uh, you know, it came to student loan debt because I had student loans. I graduated with $43,000 in student loan debt. And uh, when I started, I had some issues with my loan servicer, right? And you might have heard this story in the news, but like my loan servicer didn't apply my payments correctly. They suddenly said I was late on my loans and none of it was true. They totally just had a bunch of issues and customer service stuff. And I wrote about it. And it was one of the first articles, this was probably like eight, nine years ago. It was one of the first articles that people were like, oh my God, me too. I've had that issue, you know, my student loans and all this. I was like, wow, this really is a, a thing. And, you know, I heard from my friends, they're all like, you know, I'd love to start investing and, you know, I'd love to start doing some of this other stuff you're talking about, but my student loans are holding me back. And so it was really eye-opening to me that it's something that we need to talk about more. And I'm glad to see it in the news as much as it is today. I mean, it's not positive per se, but, you know, the more people talk about it, the more people are aware of it, uh, the more the messages of different options and repayment plans and strategies can get out there. Yeah. And uh, regarding the, the news presence, uh, I read first about it last October. So there's one article, one, one, one uh, a bigger one. I think even made by the guy who used to uh, be the leading lawyer or the leading legal advisor for all the people who got applied, uh, who got uh, rejected for their applications and for, for all this student, what is it called? Student loan re refinancing? Re no, no, student loan uh, forgiveness. Forgiveness, yeah, student yeah. loan forgiveness program. This is when, when I first noticed that this is a much, much bigger issue than, than I thought for at first. Yeah, and for me personally, I remember that um, I also read an article also a year ago, more or less, I think it was Wall Street Journal, and I read a story about a dentist who had a $1 million uh, student loan. And I was like, what? And then I went... <laughs> Isn't that... Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and then, that's uh, crazy. We went into the weeds between, like, the difference between the... And we can talk about this, I guess, further. The difference between the government subsidized loans uh, and fixed interest and versus private and... Um, floating interest rates and stuff like this. So yeah, I mean, totally. So, I mean, most borrowers have federal loans. And the great thing about federal loans is federal student loans are the best student loans to have. They have the most programs out there. They are the only loans that offer loan forgiveness. And since 2007, you know, every single federal loan is backed. It's issued by the Department of Education. It's government run. Um, you know, it's a great program. It's really, it doesn't require anything to get approved and which is part of the problem, right? Anyone can go and borrow. But on the flip side, you have all these different ways to repay your student loans. Um, where a lot of people get into problems is private loans. Private mm -hmm. loans, 
function much more like a car loan. Uh, but the IOU, the collateral, you know, if you have a car loan, you don't pay your car loan, they just repossess your car, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, with a student loan, the, the, the collateral is your earnings. And so if you don't pay your student loans, well, they're going to garnish your wages and they could sue you and they could take your house and, you know, they could take your tax returns and take your social security, even if you kick the can to retirement. Right. And so I think people don't realize that your student loan collateral is your earnings. So if you have income, that's free game for the lenders to come after. And, and, I, and I want to ask you a question with regards to, I have friends, um, I had a couple of friends that were going into, they're American and then they were going into student loans and they had private student loans. Um, and because I read this article, I was asking them just like, just asking them about their loans. And um, I figured that they, they didn't even know what their rate was. They didn't know what type of loan they had. I was like, is the rate floating? They're like, I have no idea. Do you, do you know? come across and what, what would you recommend to people that come into young people coming into loans? Well, and that's it. That's the biggest thing. So I would tell you that, you know, the media, right. They, they mm-hmm. skew. The only thing that makes the news are the crazy stories, right? You're not going to see just average Joe Schmo on the news. Most people are fine paying their student loans. You know, maybe they're not on the best repayment plan or they could be doing something better, but most people aren't struggling. Uh, a good amount are, 20, 30% of borrowers are, which is a large number. We're talking 10 million people, but you know, there's still uh, most of them, most aren't struggling. But the people that are struggling, it starts with organization, right? So here's a scary statistic is the average borrower has five student loans. And it kind of makes sense, right? You get one your freshman year, your sophomore year, your junior year, your senior year. A lot of people do take a five-year program or maybe they took a summer semester, right? And so you have five loans. You don't live in the same place you lived when you were a freshman, right? You probably live in a dorm room or something. And so you you gotta make sure your information's updated. You gotta track down these old loans and you gotta lay them all out and know what you have because you can't even make the right decision for your loans if if you don't know what you're sitting on, right? And uh, for me, I mean, personally, I was thinking with regards to the friends I have and me too as well when I was, uh, young and usually people are um, in the position where if they want because like now the trend more or less everybody is trying to get into college people are realizing at least in the united states is like oh yeah without a degree i can't do anything that's the the narrative and usually students when they come uh, out of high school they're like 18 19 years old me personally i had no idea about finance and I, I, a lot of people that come out of high school have no educational finance and then they come into these loans and do you think, um, my, my question would be, what do you think it can be done in order to, to pro- prevent this from happening, uh, from uneducated people coming into uh, loans they know nothing about and people actually giving them the loans, being aware of, um, aware of the, the knowledge that's not there from the other party? Um, no, you're loans, right. So. I mean, to tackle the problem, right, there's two sides of it. We got to help the people that already have loans and they can't afford it. But the bigger issue is how do we prevent young adults today from making poor financial decisions when it comes to it? Because getting student loans isn't bad. It's just like any other form of debt, right? If you mm-hmm. buy a house and you get a mortgage, well, if you buy too much of a house with too much of a mortgage, that's bad, right? You're going to struggle. But if you take a, you put a big down payment and less of a mortgage, like it can all work out just fine. And, and that's how student loans should be. But it's hard because we don't have a lot of financial literacy education in school these days. And And it starts early. If you're trying to talk to a kid at 17, you're too late. 
Like they already have dreams, aspirations. They've already applied to school. Like we need to be talking to children about finance and how it all works starting in elementary school and then a different curriculum in middle school and then a different curriculum in high school. And we got we to gotta talk about these things and teach them and educate them. And there's a lot of memes and jokes that go around on the internet, but they're kind of true. These, these are the jokes that are like, you know, I, I learned trigonometry, but like I didn't learn how to do my taxes. And mm-hmm. it's 100% the truth. Like we do spend a lot of time teaching things in school that, you know, might not be super valuable. Whereas things like basic personal financial skills, how loans work, you know, how to pay for college. These are valuable skills, especially if we want children to go to college. But it also starts at home because like it's not just math, right? The math is important, but there's like this huge element of like psychology and life and family. And, you know, your parents are telling you since you were, you know, six years old that you got to go to college and, you know, but maybe you have no idea what you want to do in life. And like, so like, there's all this other psychology stuff that goes with this college discussion. That's a lot more challenging than the math. Exactly. And, um, (laughs) Just to be correct, I think I've read um, about you. The um, I think you uh, about you personally that you teach your kids from uh, they're young, I guess, and that you already teach them about finance. Is that correct? Or yeah, hundred percent. I mean, my son's six and my daughter's three, and I mean, he knows we recycle cans and he knows how to earn money and he saves his money and he, you know, we teach him, you know, if he wants to buy something, he's got to spend it. So it's like we definitely try age-appropriate ways to teach children about personal finance and money because, like. That's, that's one of the basics of human society today. And so you can't ignore it. You can't just pretend that children are going to watch and learn. You got to teach them. You got to show them. They have to do it themselves and understand um, how money works. It's just, that's the only way. Would, would you say that that one problem is that the, is with the ease or lies in the ease of getting loans and that basically everybody gets a loan without any application without any proper due diligence? Uh, Well, 100%. I don't think that anyone gets a loan is the problem because, you know, the statistics are everyone's going to earn money potentially. And if you get disabled or you don't earn money, you also get your loans forgiven. There's a lot of great forgiveness programs out there. And so I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that um, the crazy amount you can borrow has perpetuated the high cost of education, right? So most economists in the higher education community agree that government's free money has basically is what's driven the cost of education rising as high as it has. You know, you go back into the 70s and 80s um, when loans were issued by private banks and only insured by the government. You know, we had a very different system than we have today. You know, college costs rose at a slower rate than their rate rising today. Um, And so I think that's part of the problem. I also think that we need to have a real ROI return on investment discussion around education spending. Um, You know, because it's just like anything else, we have the data. You could Google what salaries are and what careers pay and all that stuff. I mean, it's so clear as day out there, like two minutes on Google and you can figure out what you're going to earn in life. I mean, it's kind of scary on one hand, but you know, if you want to be a teacher, you can look up your state or city and know what teachers make. If you want to be an engineer, you can, you can get a good estimate of what a starting engineer works, you know, or what they make. And so like, whatever you want to do, you can just search for it. So we can take that data and we could really um, change the dynamics of lending. But you know, I, there's the, the whole other argument is like, 
but like you're, you're judging and telling people what they're going to do, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of caps on student loan borrowing. I don't, I think if we did put caps on student loan borrowing, people would be forced to borrow less, which in turns universities and colleges would be forced to charge less. I think it would definitely cause a short term issue um, for people. And it also might, you know, disenfranchise like first time college students or people like that. So that's a negative. And there might be things we can do to address that. But I do think caps on student loan, like the amount you can borrow would be a, a, a holistic good thing. Um, my only objection, I guess, to this uh, notion, I guess, I under completely understand where you're coming from, um, is since we're basically located in Boston, and uh, we both studied in Boston, um, the, the amount of international students that we have, at least here, so I'm, I'm looking from my perspective, is, is very large. And uh, personally, uh, I, one problem that might arise is that, that even though that you put a cap on American students and how much they can borrow, then you will have a, a huge inflow of international students and maybe uh, these colleges and universities won't, won't honestly care because they're also making money, you know, in, in the end. What do you think about this? Notion? Well, that's how they already do it today. There's no, that's not, that's not shocking. That's how, that's how the system works. And so in a lot of places, um, I'm in California, right? So the UC system, all the yeah. UC schools in the, San, in the California state schools, they set limit, they set quotas on how many, um, you know, residents of the area they have to have and how many things. So, I mean, you can legislate to make it equitable, but they do, they want those international students or those out of state students because they do pay their fair share. I think the interesting thing for like in California, I was just doing the math, you know, the state budget only contributes 7% of the cost of educating everybody in California with, you know, we have UCLA, UC Berkeley, like a lot of great schools, right? Um, and only 7% of their whole budget, which is over, you know, was billions of dollars is funded by the state. Everything else is paid for by tuition. So it's, you know, tuition, grants, things like that are, are the main drivers of, you know, how they're paying their bills. And so I think it's totally fair to have international students come. I think it's great. I think it's important, um, but I think it's fair to have them pay more as well, but you can legislate how many people you allow in. And just to pitch one idea, what would you think about um, a government subsidy instead of giving a loan, um, a government subsidizing the, the, the best and the talent, the most talented students basically compensating or giving a portion um, to the loan payment, to the, sorry, to the tuition payment. But we do. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we have Pell Grants. We have tons of grant programs out there from the federal government, from the state government. And then isn't student loan forgiveness a subsidy in effect? And so right now, 50% of everybody with student loans can get some kind of student loan forgiveness might not be total loan forgiveness, but it could be partial loan forgiveness. And, and that's effectively a subsidy right there in itself too. So you could ask yourself, are we um, you know, subsidizing the right levers to get the results we want? You know, maybe we are, maybe we aren't, um, but there's definitely lots of subsidies out there already. And you know, is it the right way to use them? I don't know. Would you say that part of the problem is that the government has, has lost track of how many loans they have given out. And that's why they, they were outsourcing it to private organizations, to private contractors to take care of this. And then at the end of the day, these contractors were basically, I think I went through the data uh, last week, uh, 
already and only 1% got approved at the end of the day, everybody else could uh, decline because of not meeting program requirements. With would, regards would you, to forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, with regards to forgiveness. So. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the model of the government has always been to use contractors for everything. So the contractors themselves or, or the idea of using contractors in itself isn't the problem. Uh, the real problem is the alignment of the contracts that we're using for these contractors. And do they align with the social policy outcomes we want to see when it comes to student loans, right? And so for the long time, and this is where you're seeing lawsuits and different things, these contractors like FedLoan, Nelnet, Navient, all these contractors didn't necessarily have the alignment in their contracts that I think we as a society wanted to see. They, they were more encouraged in their contracts to steer people in different directions for their own profitability. And you can build that in contractually. You could say like, you need to do this. And if you don't, we're going to, you know, hurt you. We're not going to pay you less. Or, you know, like there's definitely financial and contractual incentives that we can totally use on these companies to align them in the correct fashion. And we just haven't. When it comes to public service loan forgiveness, the 99%, it's one of those headlines that like really grinds my gears because it's so misleading. And the misleadingness of this headline is designed, in my own personal opinion, to scare people away from using it. It's that whole promise of like the government is inept and can't do anything right. Well, look at this example. This is why it's, it's proof that they're not doing it right. But really the headline and all the problems were created by the government. And it's like, they're just trying to like end their own program because it's a different administration and things. So the 99% headline is incredibly misleading. Public service loan forgiveness, the program that it's about is 100% functioning the way it should, but there's a lot of underlying reasons. So 99% of those people that got rejected, none of them should have applied for the program. They weren't eligible. And if they would have taken more than 30 seconds and typed it into Google, they would have learned they weren't eligible. But, you know, it's, I also put this personal responsibility thing. Like, you know, like imagine if I was to pay you guys, you know, say I was going to give you $100,000, right? And all you had to Thank do you. was, yeah, but let's just say sales will give you $100,000 and the requirement was that you just did three things and you did it for 10 years. Would you make sure that you checked to make sure you were doing those three things for 10 years for like $100,000? Um, I would say yes, currently, because yes. I'm, I'm 26. <laughs> but if I'm 18 and I'm coming out of high school, I would definitely say no, knowing well, myself. But here's the thing, and that, well, this is the thing, and this is how this loan forgiveness thing works, right? Like, all you have to do is meet three requirements. Requirement one is have the right loan type. And this is why most people got rejected. If you got a student loan after 2007, you probably have the right loan type. If you had a loan before 2007, you don't have the right loan type. It's as easy as that. Number two was be on the right repayment plan. You can figure out what repayment plan you're on. It's not hard. Yeah, and the, another big, the other big portion of people that got rejected were on the wrong repayment plan. And then number three was be at a qualifying employer. And then I guess number four is fill out the documents, right? Because about 30% of people got rejected just because they didn't fill out the paperwork correctly. So it's like when you say that like 99% of people got rejected, like 99% of them really just needed to like, in 10 years, you couldn't figure it out. Like, and these, these companies also give you an update. You submit your employment certification every year and you can log into your student loan dashboard and see that your payments qualified. So these people, once again, like you're telling me in 10 years, you never bothered to log into your student loan account 
and see if your payment's qualified. And so like, yes, I, I don't want to dismiss it. There are problems with these loan servicers. There might not be aligned with your best interest. But on the flip side, you as a person can Google it and figure it out. And you're the only one that's responsible for your own money in life. Like you can't put the, you can't put your own personal financial life in the hands of like a call center that's going to process your paperwork that you may or may not fill out correctly. You know? Exactly. That's that's really a staggering number. If if it can be narrowed down to to these things and 99% didn't get that right and didn't prioritize their money uh, that high that they did it in 10 years, I have to say, well, yeah, and, uh, and here's the thing. So here's where the stats get a lot better. So the, the government stats are pretty transparent on public service loan forgiveness. So the program started in 2007, but it started in October of 2007. So the first time you could have ever even been eligible, if you um, like, like literally like watched Congress, saw when it was passed and like did everything right, November would have been your first eligible payment in November 2007. So that means November 2017 would have been, if you did the whole 10 years, perfectly in a row would have been the first time you could have been had your loans forgiven. And the government actually put out an estimate that they only estimated 100 people qualified in the first year, just because it would have been so rare. And that's where it's like, well, you want to know how many people got approved? 92. It wasn't very far off from their estimate. And they actually have been putting out estimates every year and their actual estimates of who should qualify because they also have all the data on their end of who's got the right loans and who's got the right payment plans and who's got the right employment. They know, and it's not far off from their data. It's just they have all these other people like applying to the program that shouldn't be. And so when you look out at their data, in 2021, we're supposed to have like 40,000 people get approved. And then in 2023 and 2024, it's over 100,000 people getting approved each year. And so, and it makes sense, right? So, you know, let's just say you, the law passed in 2007, so then you went to school, you know, it it was really into effect in 2008, but some of these repayment programs and stuff didn't even come into effect until 2009 and 2011. And so like, let's just say you started school in 2011. Well, you graduate in 2000, what is that, 15, you go to school for four years, start your repayment. 2025 is when you should actually expect to get your loans forgiven, not in 2018, right? That means you would have had to start on day one, which is like statistically impossible. Yeah, right, right. That, that makes sense. I guess, I mean, this is why we have the podcast, to be honest, because like, <laughs> I, we feel like there's a huge disconnect between between the the kind of the financial sector or like the government, let's say in this case, and people, you know, like uh, this is a very, very, very important part of somebody's life and it can ruin somebody's life because you can ruin their finances and then, well, good luck with your life, you know, with the zero income. And if you also enter the program, which will... Uh, allow you to earn an average salary of 33,000 per year, but you have to pay back your loan, then you're really in a tough spot. You have to like do two jobs and somehow fight with it, you know? Right. But it's like, you know, it's on you. And I mean, we can't ignore the personal responsibility aspects of borrowing to pay for college because you know what? Like you could also not go to college and you could start working right away and making 35, $40,000 a year and have no debt. Or you could go to college and have 30 or $40,000 in debt just to graduate and earn that same amount. And like, who's going to be better off? The person that started right after college with no debt and might have saved a little bit of their income, maybe not a lot, because that's still not a lot of money. But you know, like, we need, you need to ask yourself these things and no one's going to care more about your money and your life than you are. And we have to teach our young adults how to have confidence to 
to think about these things. And uh, if, if you had to boil it down now, if you had to summarize it now in, into, let's say, 10 most important tips or, or uh, on, on a weekly uh, narrative, on a monthly narrative, how to get out of your student loan the best, the fastest, but what, what would you, what so would number, you give? Yeah, Five number thousand. one, yeah, number one, get organized. Just get organized, find your loans, put them in a spreadsheet or whatever, you know, if you're an online or a spreadsheet guy or a notebook person, like just get organized, put them in whatever you're comfortable with to stay organized. Number two is pick the best repayment plan for you. And that repayment plan is gonna be the one that you can afford every single month and not miss the payments. It might be an income-based repayment plan, it might be an aggressive one, but whatever it is, just make sure you can afford it every month because the worst thing that you can do is stop making payments on your loans. That's where you get into big trouble because if you go into default on your loans, your loan balance will automatically grow by 30% simply because of collection costs and all the fees that are involved. So don't go into default, don't mess up your loans, don't miss payments. And then after that is deciding on what course of action you're gonna take. And this is different for everybody. Are you gonna go for loan forgiveness? We'll do some research, find the loan forgiveness options that might qualify, you might qualify for. Are you just gonna try to pay them off? That's cool, but like figure out a repayment plan. Maybe it's a debt snowball or a debt avalanche or whatever is your style, pay them off. And then it's always a positive to earn more. People might bash the gig economy or things like this, but like, you know what, if you want to go, what are you doing right now? You're listening to this podcast. That's awesome. But are you just Thank like you. driving? Are you driving home? Right? No, but seriously, are you driving home? Are you at home? Like, could you out be out like driving for Uber or Lyft right now? Could you be out selling something right now? Could you be out doing something right now that's going to put $100 into your pocket? Because that might not be a ton of money, but you know, if you threw that towards your student loans, you might pay them off a year or two fast. And so it's just something to think about right there. And that's kind of my action steps for your debt. Yeah. And uh, just from, uh, I guess, from macroeconomical point of view, I would like to add that, yeah, uh, I, I agree completely with you that <laughs> it's, it's individually, um, it's, it's um, I guess it's fault of every single person that doesn't pay attention to what they're doing with their lives, especially when you come and you think about education. But I think this is basically what happens in this country is where the education in general has been going down in quality and you produce people who are not educated enough. I mean, uh, the system is producing people who are not educated enough to even think about uh, uh, about this when they come to this step in their life and they make poor decisions. And in the end, it's just coming around to bite you back in the, I'm not gonna say a while, but uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, you said you 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 got it right there, and and the question is is why? I mean, I've heard these conspiracy theories around it, but you know, it's like no one's going to care more about your life and your money than you, and it comes down to that at the end of the day. And you know, we all use money on a daily basis. We all use our education on a daily basis. Maybe not our higher education per se, but like we definitely use like the basics that we learned. And so both of those things are extremely valuable. I think that we educate our young adults on and our children on, and even our regular adults on, they need to learn if they didn't catch it earlier on in life. Um, but it's never too late. And there are some systemic issues. Like people do get pushed down paths and like companies don't have your best interest at heart. And you know, all these other things that go into it that don't make it easy, but it does start with you. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, Robert, um, uh, thank you very much. 
Um, again, uh, what would you recommend? Where, where can people find you? Uh, where can they find your work? I know you, you write for Forbes, right? I do write for Forbes, all about student loans and millennial money topics, but you can find me at thecollegeinvestor.com or you can listen to the College Investor audio show on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, you have a podcast as well. We do. It's just our, our, our blog articles. It's their short format shows, six to 10 minutes and a quick, easy listening on financial topics of the day. That's great. Uh, are you also on Apple Podcast and uh, all the platforms, more or less? All, all the platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all of them. We will make sure to uh, let our listeners know um, once we promote the episode. And again, thank you very much. Uh, this was very educational and I hope that when people listen to this, they can, they can draw all these positive conclusions and kind of the tips um, of how to organize their finances, especially yeah. in terms of student loan. I love it. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay. Robert, thank, thank you very much. Enjoy your evening. Um, hey, you too, guys.